Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. We're in a series this morning again that is called Resistance. So every time I say the word resistance, I feel like I need to do this. Do you feel like you need to do that? Just go ahead. Just raise your hand. Resist. Yeah, resistance. It's also the symbol of BLM, which, uh, you know, uh, and the symbol of all kinds of other resistance groups. It's not a stick-it-to-the-man sort of symbol this morning, although sometimes stick-it-to-the-man is what's in our hearts. What I hope for us is that as a a body of believers, that we we will uh, be the resistance, that we are bold, that we are strong, and that we are humble. See, when you combine humility with boldness, with strength, you have something that will resist everything that comes against you. It's when we approach everything around us with arrogance and boldness that we probably are going to lean toward weakness in the end. But our strength and our boldness comes from God Almighty if our hearts are in the right place. See, in this day and in this age, and I feel like such an old guy saying this, because as a child I heard, in this day and in this age, and essentially what the preacher was saying, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. That's basically what was being said. And I don't really want to give you that impression this morning. Because what I know is God has us. And God has the future. God has us in our future. And he knows what's ahead of us. He's really aware of what's behind us. And he is informing us. And he is preparing us for what the future holds. So as we we live in this world, we must be bold. We must be strong. We must lead with humility. Because what what we're up against is a... Uh, a world that is capitulating to popular opinion and that popular opinion seems to be redefining what is right and wrong. Am I right? Popular opinion seems to be redefining in the world we live in what is right and what is wrong. Like when I was a kid, I thought that there were some clear distinctions between right and wrong. And now, all these years later, as an adult, it's gotten really muddy in the world at large. What used to be wrong is now called right. And whatever is right is now being mocked as wrong. It's backwards, is it not? We are at war We are representing the resistance, 
But when we think about resistance, it may not look like we think it might. Last week, I implored you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to read the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivered. I hope you did that. If you did, you read in chapter 5 of Matthew that we are the salt and we are the light. Jesus doesn't say you might be. He doesn't say you should be. He looks at the followers in front of him and he looks at you and I this morning and he says, you are the light. He says, you are the salt. It's not a negotiable aspect of who we are as followers of Jesus. We must be. He calls us out to be. He says, you are the salt. You are the light. This is how we go to war, friends. This is how we come against the brokenness around us is that we maintain our saltiness. If we lose our saltiness, what good are we? No one puts a, puts a, turns a light on and then puts something over it to hide that light. No. We expose the light because the light removes the darkness. We keep adding salt everywhere we go because saltiness brings flavor. Saltiness takes the dullness away. Salt and light, that's what we are. So we're at war, and what are we at war at? What are, we, what are we warring against? What are we warring against this morning? Now, we, we may just look at the fact that we're, uh, we're in a culture war. That's a popular opinion these days. We're in a culture war. I mean, this has been true since the 90s when it really became prevalent, this idea of warring cultures, one uh, part of society struggling for dominance of their values, of their beliefs, of their practices. And you and I are being pressured from the left and the right to assimilate into this host culture that we live in, this culture that you and I are living in. We're being pressured you got to identify with the left or you got to identify with the right. You've got to find your place. We are at war. But you guys, we are not at war with people. We are at war with lies. We are at war with that which is not true. We struggle not against flesh and blood, remember? We struggle not against flesh and blood, but we struggle against the spiritual. We are at war with the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'll remind you that the devil will float some deceptive ideas that will seem agreeable to our disordered desires, and then it is normalized in the world around us, in the culture around us. Deceptive ideas whispered in our ears seems about right because it matches with the way I, I, I think. It matches with my disordered desires, the things I really desire. And well, yeah, everybody else is doing it. It must be right. It must be right. In the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, in fact, he hadn't even started his ministry yet here on earth. John the Baptist is 
uh, baptizing people. And one day Jesus just walks around. I just imagine that he's walking along and he's in the peripheral of John's vision. And all of a sudden John sees him and and he points to Jesus. And he says, there he is. There he is, the son of God. There he is. He begins to identify Jesus for who he is. And two of John's disciples, they begin to follow Jesus. Well, if he's a son of God, then I'm going to follow him. And they begin to follow Jesus. And, and scripture tells us that Jesus turns and he says to them, well, he actually asks them a question. They're walking along and he turns and he says, what do you want? And I imagine he didn't say, what do you want? I'm guessing he said, what do you want? What do you want? Now that question could also be asked another way. It could be, what do you love? What do you love? What's in your heart? What do you want? It's interesting, isn't it? That later, after the resurrection, Jesus looks at Peter. Peter, who had denied him three times, needed to tell Jesus three times, I love you. Because Jesus asked him repeatedly, three different times, he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't ask these disciples? What do you know? What do you know? He didn't even ask him, what do you believe? He just said, what do you want? What do you want? See, because gaining more knowledge, getting more information does not translate to a deeper walk with Jesus. It doesn't translate to more holiness. It doesn't translate to a deeper spiritual experience. You can't think your way to a more Christ-like behavior. Instead, as the writer of Philippians, Paul, writes this in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. Love before gaining more knowledge, gaining more understanding. So you have to step in. If you're, just, if you're just getting more knowledge, more understanding, without the love of Christ in you, it is simply just more knowledge and more understanding. Jesus' words to those disciples, that question that he asked could not have been more uh, uh, perceptive. It could not have been more, more uh, piercing and insightful than what do you want? What do you want? Because you guys, we are what we want. We are what we want. Think about this. We are what we want and we are what we love. We are what we want and we are what we love. So now turn with me, if you would, to 1 John 2. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Some would say lust of the flesh. A craving for everything we see or lust of the eyes. 
and the pride of or and the pride in our achievements and possessions and some would again translations would say the pride of life these are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So let's go back and define the word world again. In this passage, the world is referring to society in general. Society that... that um, attempts to live as if there is no God. This is what this passage is referring to. In other passages, for example, when, when uh, John writes in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, for God so loved the world, that would be the people of the world. God so loved the people of the world. Uh, that can also be referred to, the word, the, the word world could also be referred to as creation, everything that has been created. Author and theologian Dallas Willard defines the world this way. He says, our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. John Mark Comer, author and pastor, says the world is what happens when a lot of people give in to their flesh and base animalistic desires are normalized. Okay, so let's take, for example, like... Um, one of the things that, that would point to a normalization of something that is based in our animalistic desires, all right? So let's take uh, systemic um, racism of slavery, for example. So think about this. It was first practiced by a few. Then it was practiced by many. Well, and then it became a necessary evil. And then it became, it's just the way things are. And then we have a barbaric, heinous evil that has been normalized. Now, I imagine that as you sit here this morning, as you look around at our culture, at our society, and you think about the things that used to be wrong that are now being painted as right, Slavery is not the only place that you go in your mind. Disordered desires have become ordered desires in our society. It's being perpetuated as this. And we also like to think that we're so modern and we have, we have just got the, the newest thoughts and the freshest thoughts and yet, here we go again, because it's into this culture that I'm describing right now, the culture that you and I live in right now, the things that are broken right now is the culture that Paul was writing to. He was writing into that culture in Romans, so he's writing this, this, this letter to the Roman church, and guess what? He's talking about the same things, many of the same things, many of the disordered desires that were present in that day and age are present in today's day and age, and that's what makes our scriptures so incredibly, incredibly relevant to where we live right now. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, in the message translation, it reads like this, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he runs from you and quickly respond to it. 
unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings out the best of you. God develops well-formed maturity in you. So let's get at this thing of culture for just a minute. I love culture. I, I love the culture that, um, that has been developed because it can be a really good thing. It's the, the culture that's been developed within Restore. I love it. I think it's, it's uh, positive. It is good. It is helpful. So what's the deal with culture? If we're not supposed to become uh, well-adjusted to the culture, what's he pointing to? I believe what he's pointing to is what he points to in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, bad company corrupts good behavior. Now, this isn't unique to just the Christian culture. In general, we know that, like, have you ever heard your, have you ever said to your kids, I don't know if I want you hanging around with that kid. I don't want him rubbing off on you. I don't want you to begin behaving like that person. Even the Buddhists, have, they have 38 high, uh, of the highest blessings in the Buddhist faith. The top two are don't associate with fools and do associate with the wise. We become like the relationships we cultivate and the culture to which we belong. And so it is important that you step into the right culture. It is important that you step into the right relationships. It doesn't mean that you don't interact with anyone that, doesn't think di that thinks differently from you. It doesn't mean you shy away from hard conversations. It doesn't mean that you don't engage the culture. It simply means be hyper aware that you don't begin to assimilate that you continue to resist, and you resist by being salt. You resist by being light in the world around you. Unfortunately, in our current culture, in 2022, all the old moral absolutes seem to be no longer in fashion. And the new authority, see if this fits, the new authority seems to be authentic self, desires, and feelings. Authentic self, desires, and feelings. If we're going to depend on our emotions to drive our moral compass, we will be directionally challenged. We will lose. In many respects, I think we've lost our true north. Because instead of depending on a solid, firm foundation of truth, we have succumbed to the society, the culture around us. Because deceptive ideas, they appeal to our disordered desires. And many times, tragically, they find a home in society at large. So how do we resist? How do we resist? My sense is that the only way to resist is to dive into and become an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. It is to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let it soak deep within us. Let the words of Jesus guide our every thought and our every action. 
See, following the way of Jesus, discipleship, is more a matter of hunger and thirst than it is about knowing and believing. Because when we hunger and thirst after Jesus, he aligns our loves and he aligns our longings with his. We want what God wants. We want what God desires. To hunger and thirst and crave a world where he is all in all, this is shorthand for the kingdom of God. When we want what God wants, we want the kingdom of God. Blessed are those, again from Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, it's not that Jesus isn't after our intellect. We have a God-given intellect. But he doesn't just speak to us through our intellect, through our thinking, through our reflection, through our contemplation. In fact, Jesus invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart and asks, what do you want? What do you want? What do you love? Are you in it to win the culture wars? The war of words. The war of politics. What do you want? What is it that you love? Fifty years ago, and I didn't know this until I started thinking through what happened 50 years ago. I didn't realize it was that long ago already, but I was nine years old. In June of 1972, my family and I uh, were getting ready to go on a, uh, a, a vacation. We were going to spend a couple weeks in Colorado. And as a nine-year-old, I wanted to help my dad, and my dad had cut down a tree. And this tree had a number of limbs on it. And, um, and so I was going to help. And so while he was uh, dragging an additional part of the tree up to where he was uh, cutting it all apart, I went into the shop, and I found the hatchet. And I thought, wow, I can help. I can help my dad. I'm going to finish this work so we can leave. I'm going to get on this. There's a few things I clearly remember. And I clearly remember hoping that I, I actually put the hatchet on the right thing, right? That I, that I actually hit the limb that I'm aiming for. That popped through my mind just before that hatchet came down and stuck itself right in the top of my foot. I was barefoot at the time, so we're just getting ready for vacation, and there I am with a gaping wound on the top of my foot. I was like, ugh. My dad saw it all happen from a distance and uh, quickly scooped me up, and we went to the ER, and I was fixed up in a matter of, uh, you know, a couple hours. I had stitches. I had uh, directions for how to handle this with, uh, when we were on vacation. My time in the swimming pool was limited during that vacation. But I was fixed up. I mean, the wound was gaping. It was ugly. But I didn't lose my foot. My foot's still intact. But do you know that as recently as the 19th century, the best doctors in the world still didn't have any way to prevent infection and the rotting of the tissues when someone had a wound similar to what I just described? 
I'm just gonna read you an excerpt here. In field hospitals, doctors routinely cut off the hands and legs of soldiers who received even minor limb injuries, fearing gangrene. These amputations, as well as the uh, as other medical procedures such as tooth extraction, were done without any anesthesia. So before the uh, the advent of uh, chloroform, if you're on the battlefield and you get so much as a a wound, it would take four soldiers to hold down a wounded comrade while the doctor sawed off the injured limb. The Battle of Waterloo was fought in 1815, and on the morning after the battle, there were heaps of sawn off hands and legs adjacent to the field hospitals. In these days, carpenters and butchers who enlisted in the army were often sent to serve in the medical corps because surgery required little more than knowing your way with knives and saws. Fortunately, in the two centuries since Waterloo, things have changed pretty dramatically. Now, I can read you that, and we can all say, oh, that's terrible. It's gruesome, and it is. But you know that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Better to lose part of your body than your whole body being thrown into hell. Hyperbole, yes. But the point is that it's time to cut off bondage. It's time to cut off the lies that we're believing. It's time to cut off all these things that keep us in the world, subscribing to the worldly systems that are anti-human flourishing. They are anti-Christ. We've got to do the hard work if we're going to be of the world or in the world, but not of the world. If we're going to be the people that say, follow Jesus along with me, then you guys, we have to step into followership at levels that we cannot even imagine right now. We've got to become the people of the Jesus way that aren't just the people of the words of Jesus, but we are the, the people of the, the actions of Jesus. John chapter 17 Jesus is, is praying for his disciples as I believe he prays for us as well. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. You guys, he's still sending. He's still sending you and I. We are in the world, but not of it. It'd be so much easier to isolate, to hide away from the world, to become a little colony of our own. Except that that is not the will of God for us. Isolation is not the answer to what the world needs, to what the brokenness of the world needs. Assimilation isn't either. To become like the world, to assume that because everyone else is doing it, that's what we should do as well. That's not the answer either. Because we are in the world. We are not of the world. We retain our saltiness, our effectiveness. So stand firm. Wherever you go tomorrow, stand firm. Be strong, immovable. Do your best. Do more than, ex than is expected. More than is required. Knowing that when Jesus is in your work, your life has eternal purpose.
we know that the world has a major impact on us. The people around us, the culture we live in, the people we align with has a major impact on us. So be aware of who you connect with, what the purpose is of that connection. Be aware. The devil, he's out to destroy us. Listen to the whispers in your ear and make sure that those whispers are from the Holy Spirit. Don't believe everything that you think. And finally, next week we'll talk about disordered desires, our flesh. What do we want to capitulate to? What are the things that we find most tempting in our lives? These are important things to think about. And the reason we talk about them for four weeks is because I believe God is preparing us for the future. And it could be that I'm just repeating a cliche that I've heard a lot. And yet I look around this room and I know anyone watching from anywhere this morning, we are human beings first of all. And so in our humanity, we are tempted in a multitude of ways to live in ways that do not line up with our biblical standards, with the standard that, that, that God has set for us. So I hope you'll lean in this week. You'll listen really, really well to what the Spirit's nudge is in your life. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.